Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robert Sykes. This is the Keto Savage Podcast. I am your host. And today we have a special guest, repeat guest, Chris Irvin. Chris Irvin and I go way back. He and I have both been doing the ketogenic diet for about five years now. He just finished a book um, in coordination with Anthony Gustin. And it seems like a pretty solid resource book. It's got all kinds of questions and answers. We dove into that. We dove into uh, some of the controversial topics that are discussed in that book. I asked him what the three most controversial topics were, and we dove in depth into those. They included uh, exogenous ketones, uh, protein intake necessary um, for optimal benefit, and we dove into uh, like carnivore. Uh, we, we dove deep into carnivore versus vegans and from like a conservationist standpoint. We, we got into all kinds of weeds on that one. Uh, so definitely enjoy the podcast. I had a blast recording with Chris. Uh, I respect what he was saying. We resonated on much of the same content. He was speaking my language for sure. So listen to the podcast. Hope you enjoy. Without further ado, Chris Irvin. live chris Irvin. how are you man i'm great man how are you i'm doing wonderfully well wonderfully well. this is the second time i've had you on the podcast i believe yeah that's right it's uh it's been a while though i'm trying to remember when the last time was i think it's been a few years yeah I, if i remember correctly you were one of my first not first guests but they're in the very beginning so it's been it's been at least i feel like a year and a half possibly two lots changed for you since then man yeah, that's true. I, I remember I, it was one of the early ones. And over the last like couple of years, I've been watching as you just keep getting like more and more rock star guests on. And I'm like, holy cow, it's crazy to see how far this podcast has come. So huge kudos to you. Well, you're you're just another one of those rock star lineup, man. I mean, you're you're killing it and taking names. So it's good to have you back on. Oh, thanks, man. Excited to chat today. Likewise. So so what uh, bring us up to speed? Well, I guess give give any of the listeners that, that don't know of you haven't heard the first podcast, a quick little intro on who Chris Irvin is. Yeah. So uh, like I said, my name is Chris Irvin and um, in the keto space, I'm better known as the ketologist, which is on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all of that. Um, But I got into keto dieting about five years ago. I was in grad school and I was studying uh, nutrition in grad school, getting my master's in exercise and nutrition science. And I got intro to the keto diet. I started studying keto for sports performance, and then I got introduced to the therapeutic side of keto and started studying, um, doing, you know, helping out in a lab that was doing some animal research on the ketogenic diet for different therapeutic uses. And then when I graduated, I kind of decided that I wanted to get into education and just help educate a lot of people on, uh, you know, the ketogenic diet and just trying to like spread the message out there, spread what's been you know, what's in the research and, and in these journals that people don't have access to. And that's kind of how the ketologist was born. So um, that's kind of how I've gotten to where I'm at today. And and now today I'm working for Perfect Keto and I am the head of education here. So I'm in charge of, um, you know, putting together our educational content and, you know, making sure that everybody within the company is uh, well educated on the ketogenic diet so we can help, you know, with our mission that we're trying to do. So that's kind of the quick story there. I like it. I like it. It's cool for me to see how the keto diet as a whole is incredibly applicable for, for both athletes and from like a medical perspective because a lot of diets out there, it's like this is what you got to do to look a certain way or perform a certain way, but it's not really good for your long-term health. Whereas with keto, it's like 
there's there's so much overlap between the two. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, when I first when I was first introduced to keto, it would have been right before I started grad school. I was uh, I attended a conference at University of Tampa where Dr. D'Agostino and Dr. Volick were speaking at, and I didn't know anything about keto at the time. That was kind of my first introduction to it. And after that that uh, conference, the only thing I could see the diet for was weight loss. I was like, oh, this is an awesome weight loss diet, but I didn't really give it any more thought. And then I started falling into some of the research on showing like, you know, improved endurance performance. I was like, okay, this thing's great for endurance performance too. And then you started seeing they're like, well, if you give the diet enough time, it can actually be great for strength and power and things like that. And then, uh, and then it wasn't until I, I stumbled into, um, Travis Christofferson's book, Tripping Over the Truth, that I was like, holy cow, there's actually a huge therapeutic potential for this diet too. And I was like, man, how many diets out there are there like this where you, like you said, you can actually improve body composition and your health. It's, it's usually you got to like select one or the other. So I was blown away when I first saw that too. Is there like a, like a general tipping point? It's going to be pretty, you know, individualized, but is there like a specific tipping point that you've seen on average where you know, like if, if you're talking about therapeutic ketosis, it's oftentimes leveraging a higher fat ratio, like 85, sometimes 90% of your calories coming from fat. Whereas that's not typically what you're seeing from like an athlete perspective. Is there like a, a good middle ground where you can kind of get the boast of both, best of both worlds? Yeah, that's a really great question. And we're, we're kind of seeing that evolve right now. You know, I think uh, it's Dr. Kosoff, Eric Kosoff, who has done some research um, on the therapeutic side showing that, you know, I, I think he's shown the modified Atkins, which is a kind of higher protein version of the ketogenic diet, can even have some therapeutic potential for epilepsy, which we used to think was like something that you had to have really high fat. So on the therapeutic side, we're actually seeing that like, maybe we don't have it 100% figured out, and it might be very specific to each case. But then on the performance side, same thing. I think um, the big thing to consider there is that the traditional ketogenic diet that was that's always recommended, you know, the 20 to 25% protein thing that was developed for epilepsy and children with epilepsy, which is going to be a lot different than somebody who's trying to perform at a high level. So there, there doesn't seem to be an exact ratio. I think it's something that you have to figure out. It, it has to be a good blend of getting adequate protein to meet your demands and calories too, to meet the energy demands that your body has. Um, but what I've tended to see is that like for a lot of athletes getting closer to like the 30 to 35% of your total calories coming from protein is, is kind of where that tipping point is. Some people may have to go higher, but I think when you go lower than that, you, you just really risk some muscle loss. Uh, there was a study that came out last year. I think it was, um, in 2018. Yeah, it would have been last year that showed, you know, men who were exercising and following a keto diet for eight weeks and eating 20% of their calories from protein actually lost muscle. And it was just because, you know, even though keto can be a, you know, we could call it anti-catabolic and everything. If you, if you're exercising, you have a higher increase or you have an increased demand for protein. So you do have to account for that. So it seems like 30 to 35% is a good starting point, but some people may have to go higher. Yeah. I feel like people are oftentimes just scared about the whole gluconeogenesis, you know, concept and yeah. they veer away from protein, adequate protein consumption. I am definitely on the higher fat ratio side of things, relatively speaking, but I'm also consuming, you know, 4,000 calories. So if I'm consuming 4,000 right. calories and my fat is still, you know, 75 to 80% even, I'm still getting a ton of protein in. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point that you bring up there too, because you know, a big problem that people have is, and not that necessarily that's a problem, but you know, satiety does come with the ketogenic diet. So for a lot of people out there, it can be hard to get enough calories in that if you were following a 
high fat version of keto that you'd be able to get enough protein in. So, you know, for you, you say eating 4,000 calories, that's a walk in the park because, you know, even at 20 to 25% protein, you're still getting enough. But somebody who's eating 1500 calories, you're talking pretty low protein at that point. So, um, it's, and I think that's something that we still need to figure out too, you know, like I personally have found that I can still be in a calorie deficit and increase my protein and be just fine. But if I'm in a calorie deficit and I have low protein, then it, it's a problem. And, and I'm sure it changes as you increase uh, calories. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. And um, th the biggest take home I think there is that it's so individualized that you really have to experiment and see. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard plenty of people who have had really good success on, on super low protein variations of keto. And I've had some people that it just completely wrecks them. So, you know, testing and, and figuring out what works best for you is definitely the key. Yeah, totally agree. I feel like calories, I mean, calories obviously count and they obviously matter. There is a, it's a, it's a variable that's in the equation, but I see mm -hmm. way too many people just under consuming calories and it's, it's having a, like they're, they're asking questions about how the ketogenic diet's having a negative impact on them where I feel like it's not necessarily the ketogenic diet, more so just a, a you know, deficit that's gone on for far too long. Um, that's kind of throwing off their hormone balance, their everything really. I mean, people will point to like hair loss, for instance, and blame keto, but it's it's not just keto. It's more so just them not consuming enough food. They'll point to their cycle being off, which is oftentimes a result of just, you know, chronic under eating. Um, mm -hmm. so I feel like I, I want to see more people eat more. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. The world is full of obesity, in which case people are eating too much and not enough of the right things. But there's a lot of people in the space that are just under eating. That's having a pretty compounding negative effect as well. Yeah, I know you're so right. And this is kind of where it's interesting because this fasting is kind of a thing to think about here. So I've been kind of changing my views a little bit on fasting over the years and calorie restriction as a whole, you know, fasting has its benefits and, and so does calorie restriction. There's a lot of therapeutic potential to using these two strategies, but they're not strategies that we should use indefinitely. And I think that's a problem with people in the keto space is that you end up, you, you talk to people and it's like, man, you've been chronically restricting your calories and fasting every day for like eight months, a year that's just too long. That's not, that's not the way that we should be doing it. You know, um, the way that I like to look at it is, is you see some people when they first start keto, they're, they're so focused on cutting out, uh, the foods that, you know, we want to avoid processed carbohydrates, foods high in sugar, stuff like that, but they forget to replace those foods with foods that actually nourish our body. So it's like, it's not what makes keto different from other diets is that, like you said, calorie restriction is not as important. Uh, it does definitely play a role, but when you are repairing your metabolism and you're improving your mitochondrial function, you have a greater capacity to burn fat. And when you're following keto, you are in a fat burning mode uh, that makes it so you don't have to rely on being in a severe calorie deficit like you might have to do if you were eating a, you know, a high carbohydrate calorie restricted diet. So um, it's, it's a, one of those things that it's a big challenge for a lot of people. And especially when you talk about, you know, satiety comes with keto. So if you're not paying attention to those things, you know, I'm not a person that's really big on tracking calories uh, or macronutrients. I kind of just try to eat intuitively, but I was doing intermittent fasting, you know, five, six days a week for about a year. And one day I just decided to sit down and track my calories. And I was like, man, I'm eating like 15 to 1700 calories a day. And I weigh like 200 pounds and I, you know, playing basketball four times a week and working out four or five times a week. Like that's just not enough. 
Um, so it's, it, it is hard if you're not tracking and you're, you're experiencing some of that satiety. So it's always good to kind of check in and see where you're at to make sure that you're, you're not, you know, completely starving and restricting yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, with most dieting protocols, you're, when, when your insulin is constantly spiking and, uh, you know, dipping throughout the day, I mean, you're constantly hungry and trying to satisfy those cravings. So you're, you're oftentimes telling your, yourself, reminding yourself that you, you don't need to eat, you know, stop eating so much. But with keto, the exact opposite is true. I mean, it has more of that satiation effect and it's much easier to just go without eating and not even think twice about it. So you have to kind of inverse what it is you're telling yourself and remind yourself to eat more often half the time. Yeah, totally. And, and even more so when you start looking at like carnivore, um, I know that like every time that I go on carnivore, I have to really focus on getting enough food in because I just have no hunger at all. And, you know, I think I'm kind of in the camp of, I, I believe there's, there's a hormone side of that too. But I also think that when you're, if you're following like a whole food keto diet or you're following carnivore where you're just eating meat, you're lacking this like hyper palatability of like, you know, if you follow a keto diet and you're eating a Cobb salad that has like eight different flavors in there and there, you know, there's a ton of flavor, you're probably going to have more hunger stimulated. But if you're eating a steak, you're not going to have hunger really stimulated after it. So every time I dive into, you know, a very short food list version of a keto diet or carnivore, for example, it's always something I have to focus on because if not, I just end up in this really severe calorie deficit that uh, is probably just not great for, you know, recovery or if your goal is muscle building or performance or whatever it is. Yeah, totally agree. Especially with all these, um, you get that a lot with like the like these sweeteners that are, you know, quote unquote keto friendly. There's just so many, uh, you know, processed products coming to the market that kind of artificially impact your hunger hormones. Um, mm -hmm. They'll still spike your insulin, even if it's not showing a spike in your blood and glucose. I mean, there's, I don't know, you've, you've probably seen some research on this, but is there any way to quantify, you know, short of doing like a blood insulin test, which is kind of costly, but when you're consuming you know, something high in, uh, you know, some type of sweetener, whether it be natural or artificial, how much your blood insulin is responding, even if your blood glucose is, is staying relatively constant? Well, it is, it is a little bit difficult to do without doing a blood insulin test because, you know, the, the thought here is that the, the body may have a natural trained response to uh, increasing insulin when it senses, you know, sweetness, even if there's not an increase in blood sugar. So it, it's not as simple as, you know, prick your finger, test your blood glucose because your blood glucose might not go up and you may still have an insulin response of some sort. So I think the best way that you could probably track, I think the two things you could do is one, you could look at ketone levels because, you know, we do know that insulin does have to be down for us to be burning fat and producing ketones. Um, at a significant level. So if your ketones are are drastically dipping and, you know, to, as a caveat to that, you probably will see a dip in your ketones, regardless of what you eat. I mean, if you eat a steak, if you eat uh, all fat, you're probably going to see some dip in ketones because your body doesn't need those ketones maybe as much after a meal. Um, but if you see a drastic decrease after having one of these sweeteners, then that could be a good indicator. Uh, but I think another one too, is just like listening to your body and trying to be a little bit intuitive you know, if you're feeling pretty sluggish afterwards, um, or, or, you know, you have this massive, uh, stimulation of cravings that comes with it, then that could be a good indicator as well. Yeah. it's a good point. Speaking of ketone testing, do you, you, you've been doing keto as long as I have now, five years. Are you mm -hmm. tracking your ketones on a regular basis or just kind of going off how you feel or only when you're doing some type of experiment or what's your protocol there? Yeah, mostly when I'm doing an experiment. Um, so if there's, you know, one of the things I like to do is when new foods, uh, keto foods come to the market, I do like to test them because, 
in the past, I've seen some crazy things with like products, you know, that are saying that they have really low net carbs. And, you know, there was one company who I, I tested their product and it said three grams of net carbs and my blood sugar literally doubled after I had it. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was insane. And they were marketing as like a low carb keto friendly product, which was just crazy to me. But, um, but yeah, so I do like to test after that. And then whenever I'm doing an experiment too, so like right now I am going through, uh, me and a couple of my coworkers are doing a carnivore muscle building program. So we're, we're just doing like a hypertrophy style program. And then we're doing carnivore, uh, in a calorie surplus, you know, just eating a ton of meat and everything. And, um, so I'm testing my, my ketones and glucose a lot, but I'm actually a bigger proponent of testing my glucose than I am my ketones because I really, I, th I think ketone testing is good and there's some value to it, but I think that our understanding of these ketone levels is a little bit rough right now because we can't really determine uptake of those ketones. We can only test the availability in our blood, mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't really tell us how well we're utilizing them. So for me, I actually like to rely a lot more on blood glucose results because, you know, I know basic physiology that if your blood glucose is up, then, you know, your, your ketones are going to be lower. So I, I just kind of like to use that as an indicator, try to, you know, prevent myself from having those big spikes. But um, yeah, it's definitely not something I do all of the time anymore. It's more of like, you know, I'm testing some new strategy or uh, a new product or something, but not not necessarily in my day to day. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like, especially the longer you've been adapted, the lower your blood uh, ketone levels just trend on average. I mean, what what are when you're not testing, when you're just doing like a day-to-day -day normal activities, what are your average ketone ratings? Like if you just had to guess. Yeah, usually it's like 0. 0.7. Um, 0. 0.7 is kind of the average for me. Every once in a while, if like, uh, if I maybe I exercise late in the evening or maybe I ate dinner kind of early in the evening and then, you know, didn't have anything late at night, um, I'll wake up and have higher ketone levels, you know, closer to like 1.1. But pretty average for me is 0. 0.7. Um, which has, is a way different from when I started. I remember when I first started keto, it was like, you know, 2.1, 2.3 sometimes. And I, I watched that slowly trend down over time, but that's pretty common. Like you said, I mean, we see that with just about anybody, you know, we get better at utilizing these ketones. So if your brain is uptaking these ketones, there's obviously going to be a lot less available in the blood. So, um, and, and it's kind of funny, this is one of those things that a lot of people will freak out about. You know, get so many people to be like, oh, my, I'm not in ketosis. I don't know what's going on. My, you know, blood ketones are 0 0.4, 0 0.5, and I'm doing everything right. And it's like, no, your body's just getting really good at using them. So you're actually, you're winning and, and not losing like you think you are. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's it's funny because, I mean, I'll oftentimes trend even lower than that. Like I'll, I'll randomly test and be above one, you know, 1.7, but I'll oftentimes test and I'll be like 0 0.2, 0 0.3. So super low numbers. But I mm -hmm. know that I haven't deviated from a ketogenic protocol in five years. So it's not like my body is no longer adapted and doesn't know how to use that, that fuel. So I don't worry mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing too, which I think is a, even a better indicator is like how you feel. I mean, if you're not eating carbs, you know, we know that our brain can only really run on glucose and ketones for fuel. If you're not eating carbs and you don't have a, so, you know, you're not providing a substantial amount of exogenous glucose to your brain, uh, then, and you know, if, if your ketone levels are low, but you're feeling great and your brain's feeling great, then, you know, you're using ketones and you are in ketosis. Uh, if you weren't, you would know because you would have brain fog, you would, you know, have lack of mental clarity and, and fatigue and things like that. So I always kind of laugh. That's I went, back when I used to, when I was in grad school, I used to coach people on this and I would always get people kind of freaking out about low ketone levels. And I'd ask them, be like, well, how do you feel? And they're like, oh, I feel fantastic. And I'm like, well, exactly. <laughs> that, that's kind yeah. of a good indicator that you're doing the right things. 
What about lactate? Have you ever have you ever tested blood lactate? You know, I did when I was in right after grad school, when I was working in a lab, I did do a little bit of blood lactate testing, but it was after we were doing like a muscle damage research protocol and we measured measured uh, lactate a little bit, but I have not done it on a regular basis. Because I was looking into meters there. It's basically the same protocol as testing your blood glucose. You just break yourself and they have a strip. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more expensive to test, but I'd be curious to to get some of the data around like a training session to see you know, how efficiently my, my body clears that lactic acid. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, the, the, and I wouldn't consider myself to be an expert on this topic, but the question with that would be, would be like, um, what about like localized lactate? So, you know, you talk about in a training session, maybe you're doing heavy squats and, and you're building up like a lot of lactate in your, in your, uh, you know, posterior chain and, and things like that. Um, if you test your blood, what, what is that measure going to be? And is it going to be different from, from what it would be if you were to actually look in like the microenvironment of your muscle cells in your quads and your hamstrings? Because, you know, lactate in that sense, if, if your goal is hypertrophy, lactate can actually have a lot of benefits. So it's like, you know, is, uh, is that lactate pooling around the muscles and helping you grow or is your body clearing it very quickly? You know, I would imagine that somebody who is, is pretty well trained, they're probably clearing that lactate very well. But that, that's always a big question is like localized uh, metabolites like that versus like systemic metabolites. Yeah. And, and I feel like it has a pretty big impact on your ability to like your endurance during a training session. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, depending on carbohydrates for fuel, I'd hit a wall and it's, it's like you hit a wall with keto too, when you're training really hard, really heavy, I and mean, you can't just continually lift more and more. I mean, there is a, there's a breaking point, but it's like a totally different type of wall. Like with carbs, I, I noticed when I would hit my failure point, it was like, I mean, just like pain, like a burning sensation. Whereas now mm-hmm. it's like not so much any pain at all. It's just like total muscle fatigue. Like my, my muscles are just done, you know? Totally. Yeah. And I've experienced that too. I mean, I remember like doing uh wind gates and sprints and stuff like that. And it'd be like, man, you would just feel this like intense burn in your legs. It just made you want, like, it just felt like you needed to sit down and, and everything. And then you go to keto and it's like, man, I don't really have that anymore. Um, which obviously, you know, as we mentioned, you kind of get better at clearing lactate and things like that as you become more trained anyway. But right. I do think there's a, a pretty big difference between when your body's metabolizing carbohydrates during that training session, and, you know, instead of ketones and fat. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of banking on that. I mean, if I'm, if I'm able to increase my endurance in a training session, I'm able to have more, you know, muscle protein synthesis from a better, more stimulated muscle. I feel like that mm-hmm. would bode well for the ability to build a, a denser, more high quality muscle tissue with a ketogenic diet. I mean, that's kind of like my, my, <laughs> that's what my argument is anyways. No. And I actually agree with you because, um, I also think that volume is kind of a really big thing when it comes to hypertrophy. I think that volume is one of the, is a pretty primary component that we need to focus on. So, you know, if you, if you can get more reps and sets in, or, you know, maybe you can recover from a training session, better so that you can increase the frequency that you're hitting certain muscle groups. You know, frequency is another big thing that plays into hypertrophy. So, you know, if, if you can, and that's kind of where keto is really great too, is because not only can you improve your endurance in the training session and, you know, you can, maybe you can improve uh, your ability to recover from a, a set, but if you can recover from the session really well, which you can on keto because you're, you know, producing your, your natural antioxidant production is, is greater um, you can end up being able to train maybe more days a week or hitting muscle groups more frequently, like I said. So all of those are going to be pretty conducive of hypertrophy. So, um, you know, anybody who says that you can't gain muscle on keto, I think you're a pretty good, uh, 
pretty good example of the fact that that's not true. Yeah, it's definitely not true. So I would, I would, uh, I would cost anybody against that belief. Um, for sure. Let's dive, <laughs> let's dive into some, some questions, man. We can kind of like segue into what you just got done working on, because I'm sure there, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, segues we can branch off from the questions and answers that you've been able to do in that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the, are you, are you talking about the book I'm guessing, right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, the keto answers book that, uh, Dr. Gustin, who is the founder of perfect keto and myself, we just finished it and it launched, uh, earlier this week. Um, it, we've been working on it. So Dr. Gustin started working on this book a couple of years ago and then kind of put it on pause. And then he brought me in, uh, last year when I first started working for the company. And it was one of the first projects that he had me work on was, um, you know, taking this book to completion and working with him on getting it done. So um, this book is it's a pretty unique compared to a lot of other books. It's it's uh, written in a question and answer format. So it has 268 questions about keto in it, and um, all of these questions kind of come from you know Dr. Gustin and myself. We always have questions coming in our DMs on social media every single day, and we see so many common trends in these questions. So what we did was, is we sat down with people who were at different stages of their keto journey. So somebody who's like a beginner or, or thinking about starting somebody who has been following it for a few months. And then somebody who I would consider to be, you know, a more advanced keto dieter. And we kind of sat down, we we're like, okay, what questions do you have? And then, you know, we, so we logged what the questions are that these people commonly have. And then we kind of took it a step further and we were like, what questions do you have now that you've had these questions answered? So you get, you know, for instance, if your question is, um, does my body need carbohydrates? And we give you the answer between that. And then, you know, maybe your next question is, is okay, well, are carbs bad for me? And then, you know, maybe from there, your next question is, is like, well, what about fruit? So that's kind of how we wrote this book. And we wrote it in a way that, you know, you can read it front to back and, you know, learn everything that you want to know about it. Or you can use it like an encyclopedia where you could just go to the back of the book, look up your question, find the page and go to uh, and go get your answer. And, you know, for most of the questions, we have a short answer where it's, you know, if you don't really care about the why, you just want a quick answer. We have that there. And then there's a long answer that kind of breaks it down and, and goes a little bit more in depth. But it's uh, it's a little bit of a beast. It's kind of it's like 500 pages, I think. So it's a little bit bigger than I think what we originally intended for it to be. But when we went through and we started breaking it down, we were like, you know, hey, we think this is all useful information that people want to know. So, you know, we're not going to cut out something that we think is is useful. But uh, so far, we're getting pretty good feedback on it. So we're really excited to see, you know, we, we think this is going to be a really good resource because, you know, the main reason why we wrote it was because it's it's kind of hard to go get your questions answered. Like for a lot of people out there, you have a question, you go, you type it into Google and, you know, a bunch of different hits come up and whatever hit comes first, isn't necessarily the one that's most credible. Most times it's whoever's great at using SEO um, that gets you to the top. (laughs) So it's like, and then you have to wonder, well, is this a credible source? Is it backed by science? So we wanted there to be a resource that, you know, if if you have a lot of questions rather than sitting and Googling and trying to siphon through the information that's out there, this book is going to have everything in one place. So I think that we did a pretty good job of doing that, but you know, we'll find out as we start getting a lot more feedback from people who have gotten it. I really like the format, man, because when you stop and think about it, there is just so many questions that flood the the ketogenic DMs. And a lot of the time, totally. I mean, it's like the same question over and over again. So just simply having a resource where it's like, look, this is a credible resource. It, you know, it's backed by research and scientific evidence. So like, you know, trust in it. Is there, is there much, um, I, I got a copy of the book, so thank you for that. But is there, 
much yeah. uh, uh, like from a bioindividuality standpoint, is there a bunch of sis- situations in which the answer would be different depending upon the reader or is it pretty universal? Totally. Yeah. So one, one of the things that we did in there, we, we give a lot of like recommendations for how to do things. Um, but we always talk about how individual it is. And, you know, there's actually a whole chapter in the book that's dedicated towards self-experimentation and tracking and things like that. And that's kind of a common theme throughout the book is like, you know, this isn't the same for everybody. So for some of these questions, you know, this is the answer for somebody who falls in this category. And this is the answer for somebody who falls in that category. And, so we do really focus on that because we know that there's no one size fits all approach to it. And, you know, it's kind of funny. We So the tagline for the book, like the the subheading for it is, is, is simplifying the world's most confusing diet. And since the book came out, we've actually, there've been a couple people who have kind of hit us with negative comments on that. And they've been like, oh, what's so hard about keto? There's nothing confusing about it. Or, or they think that we're, we were trying to like scam people into to being like afraid of keto and that it's confusing and that you have to read this book and we were like yeah. oh that that is not what we were going for at all like the the point here was that there you know it it is kind of confusing like there's old people have a lot of questions like when you get down to the fundamental core of what keto is yeah it's pretty easy you don't eat carbohydrates but who has ever stopped there i mean how many people have had more questions than just that and that's kind of been the purpose of this book is like you know you really have to learn how to tailor this diet to yourself so you can get the most success and you have to learn how to tailor the diet for your own specific goals. You know, like your version of keto is going to be different from my version of keto because we're going to have different goals. And, and that's kind of a lot of the stuff that we cover in this book to just make it easier for people to figure out what they need to do. Let's let's dive into some some of the, the more big hitter questions, man, because I, I feel like there's a whole bunch of buzz right now in the keto space amongst controversial type questions. And I'm sure you were bombarded with those in writing this book. So what are like your top three most controversial questions and how'd you answer them? Yeah, great question. So the first one that comes to my mind is about protein. And, and we kind of mentioned it earlier uh, in, in this in this podcast. But, um, you know, the fear of protein that people have, I think, is it's kind of silly. Um, a lot of people think that you like you mentioned the gluconeogenesis that everybody thinks is uh, you have a, a piece of steak and it's going to get converted to chocolate cake in your body if you have too much of it. Um, so we talk about in the book how, you know, there are there are certain therapeutic cases where you may want to limit your protein consumption. And if you're somebody who is maybe severely insulin resistant, because, um, you know, one of the things we know is that people who are insulin resistant do have increased rates of gluconeogenesis. So for those people, um, you know, there could be, again, reasons to maybe focus on limiting your protein and trying to find the happy range for it. But for the majority of us out there who are following keto, protein is not a concern because, um, or, you know, having too much protein is not a concern because this is, this process of gluconeogenesis is a uh, demand driven process and not a supply driven process. So, you know, what that means, and I guess I should take a step back there. Um, for those who don't know, this process of gluconeogenesis is basically our body can make glucose out of non-carbohydrate sources. So protein is one of the things that uh, some of the amino acids and protein can be used to produce glucose. And the reason why our body has this process is because, um, you know, well, anybody who's ate a no carb diet knows that their blood glucose doesn't go to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is because of gluconeogenesis, your your body still has to produce it. And that's because there's certain cells in your body that can't use fat and ketones for energy. Um, There's, you know, certain portions of the brain and and like red blood cells, uh, they have to have glucose. So this process exists so our body can produce glucose for those cells if we're not eating it. But so when we say that this is a 
uh, a demand-driven process. It means that the body will complete this as it needs to, but it is not a supply-driven process where having too much protein is going to kick you out of ketosis. So that's that's our answer in the book there is that like, you know, for most people, um, having more protein, having a higher protein version of a ketogenic diet is going to be really beneficial. And then there's going to be some people that fall into this camp. You know, if you have uh, cancer is kind of an interesting one because, you know, there's a lot of uh, worry about stimulating mTOR too much with for people that have cancer. But then on, on the other side of it, you have uh, the fact that cachexia or muscle wasting is a really big problem with cancer. And, you know, so that's kind of a reason why you have to you have to find the happy middle ground with your protein. But um, that's that's definitely the number one question that I get. And every time I post something on Instagram about protein, that's always the first thing I get is like, oh, well, it's going to kick me out of ketosis, right? So I would say that's probably the most controversial one we've had so far. What about, uh, like, what's your take on your, like when you eat protein, when you eat specifically a leaner protein, mm -hmm. I always advocate pairing it with a fat source as opposed to just eating like a chicken breast by itself, no other, you know, fat intake with it. Like I always feel like I feel better and perform better. My body responds better from a blood glucose, blood ketone standpoint if I'm, you know, pairing that with a pretty substantial fat source. Yeah. So, uh, there's kind of two things to go with that. I, I do agree that you do want to add fat to it because, you know, a lot of vitamins are fat soluble, meaning that your body will only absorb them, um, uh, if, if it's with a fat source. So if you're some of these vitamins, you're, you're, if you're just eating it in a lean protein source, you're not going to really be able to absorb them. So getting fat is just going to help you with that. And then it's also going to help with like satiation and stuff. But when it comes to, I think one of the, the questions that people have is like, well, if I, if I just eat protein, um, if I first, I think that it's going to kick me out of ketosis, then my next thought is going to be, well, I'll just eat more fat. And then that fat will keep me in ketosis. But the only problem with that is that, uh, dietary fat is not a significant contributor to ketone production. Um, the, the ketones that are produced in our body come from, uh, stored body fat. So that's, you know, have eating more fat does not get you into a deeper state of ketosis because that fat isn't going to be, you know, shuttled toward ketone production, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't have it. And, and I think a lot of lean protein sources like chicken and stuff, you know, you're pretty much only getting protein. There's really not as much, uh, added nutrients to those foods. So I think as a general rule of thumb, like getting fattier meats or adding fat to your meat is going to be a better way to make sure that you're getting more nutrients. Yeah, totally agree. What about some outliers to dietary fat? Like if you're consuming a bunch of, you know, coconut oil, for instance, that could artificially mm -hmm. bump up your ketones temporarily. Yeah. So, uh, MCTs are the only, to my knowledge, at least, and, and I haven't found anything else yet in the research, but to my knowledge, MCTs are the only dietary fat that can be converted to ketones. Um, but it, it is important to note that it's, if you want to significantly stimulate this process through MCTs, you're going to have to get it from MCT oil, like a concentrated version as compared to coconut oil, because uh, in coconut oil, I think it's something like 70% of the fat found in coconut oil is C12 or lauric acid, which yeah. is kind of an MCT, but kind of uh, not an MCT. So it's not a great, uh, th there is actually some interesting research showing that it can stimulate natural ketone production in the brain. There is some preliminary stuff on that, but it's not going to be a significant contributor to ketone production. So if you are trying to do, uh, if, if that's kind of your goal, then you probably want to go with something like a C8 or C10 or a blend between the two. If you're trying to consume enough MCT oil to, you know, temporarily spike your ketone production, then you're going to have bigger problems in a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Cause I mean, in, it was like one serving, 
uh, of MCTs, you're probably only getting somewhere between like, you know, 0.1 to maybe 0.3 millimolar increase in your ketone levels. So if you're trying to go much higher than that, like you said, you're going to have to consume so much MCTs that uh, you're going to have a lot more concerns than ketone levels. (laughs) (laughs) Some GI distresses on the way for sure. Um, Yeah, to put it nicely. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of, you know, boosting ketone production through uh, you know, consumed products, foods, et cetera, et cetera. What's your take on, I'm sure you get a lot of questions on this for the book too, but like exogenous ketones, esters, salts, um, you know, like a lot of people, yeah. like I'm, I'm not opposed to, you know, boosting ketone levels through these means. I, I treat it pretty strategically. Like I do it around, I honestly do it more for the electrolyte load you're getting with it because the, the salts are all paired with potassium and sodium. But mm-hmm. a lot of people are under the impression that, as long as they're registering ketones, they're good to go. So they'll they'll use these uh, you know ketone salts ketone salts as kind of like a get out of jail free card, so to speak, when they're consuming a bunch of dietary carbohydrates. Yeah. So this is definitely the the probably you know maybe I should have said this as the most controversial topic in the book because uh, we do t- we do talk about it quite a bit, but um, we can we can talk about this one for a while, and it's actually one of my my favorite topics because. We in this keto space, we have a misconception about exogenous ketones. And for anybody who doesn't know what they are, um, the ketones that we produce in our body are called endogenous ketones, which means that they're produced inside our body. Exogenous ketones, exogenous means coming from outside the body. It's just a supplement version of ketones. And um, the people in the keto community tend to have a negative outlook on the supplement. And the reason why is because you know, the first company that really came into this space, and I'm not going to name names on it, but the first company that came into this space that was um, promoting exogenous ketones and selling them, they kind of did a poor job marketing them. They marketed them as like a replacement to the ketogenic diet, or like you said, a get out of jail free card. You don't have to, you know, you can have carbs and, and still get the benefits of ketosis through taking exogenous ketones. And people really became wise to that. And they were like, well, that's not the case. Um, and, and from there people decided, well, then exogenous ketones are just garbage because of this. And it's kind of been, it's been a little bit of a problem because I do think that there's a lot of potential to these things. And, you know, when I was in grad school, I was doing a ton of human and animal research with exogenous ketone salts and, and found so many great things about them. So, um, my take on them is that, and this is kind of a good way to look at them. When you take exogenous ketones, what makes them different from MCTs is that you know MCTs are going to be converted to ketones. Exogenous ketones are just going to be absorbed into your bloodstream and increase your blood ketone levels. And depending on what you take, so if you take a salt uh, versus like an ester, you know typically with like the salts, you're going to see like maybe a, a, an hour and a half to three hour increase in your ketone levels. And it's going to depend on your body and on how high they're going to increase. But the reason why that is beneficial is because your brain... Um, what makes your brain's metabolism of glucose, uh, uh, what makes your brain's metabolism of ketones unique is that glucose in the brain only gets pulled in, um, based on the demands of your brain. So our brain has a massive energy demand. I saw a stat the other day that said that, um, you actually burn more energy in your brain at rest than your like leg muscles would during a marathon. So like our brain has a massive energy demand and glucose is only is pulled into the brain. Um, and this is something that's brilliantly outlined by Stephen Kunain, who's a doctor who has studies uh, neurodegenerative diseases. But he says that glucose is pulled into the brain based on its the brain's demand. So the brain says, I need this much energy. I'm going to pull glucose out of the blood. But ketones, on the other hand, 
they are pushed into the brain based on their availability. So if you can, you know, theoretically, if you can increase your ketone levels, you can increase the energy available to your brain. Now, I'm not a big advocate for saying that we need to chase higher ketone levels. I don't think that that's something that we need to do, but there are certain instances when having higher ketone levels and what your body can achieve naturally, uh, there's, there's benefit to that. So, you know, before a training session, for instance, is, is going to be a great time for that. Um, when I was writing this book, when I was trying to do like my, my three, four hour deep work sessions in the morning, that was a time when I wanted to have more ketones available. Um, if you're talking about, you know, post concussion, that's a great time to have ketones or, you know, maybe some therapeutic instances where having higher ketone levels is going to be beneficial. So that's kind of the, the point here is that you're, there's going to be certain times when you could benefit from having more energy available to your brain and ketones can exogenous ketones can come in and help in this case. And, you know, the big argument with the salts is, and to let people know, you know, there's a difference between there's exogenous ketone salts, which are basically the ketones are bound to minerals like sodium and potassium. Some people use calcium, magnesium is another source. Um, and then there's ketone esters, which are a more liquid version of it. Uh, it's, it's bound to, um, uh, to like an alcohol molecule, I believe. And the difference here is that esters will give you a much more robust increase in your ketone levels and the salts will give you a more moderate increase. So, um, salts are a lot cheaper than ester. So it's kind of turns into one of those things. Like if you're a frequent user of them, I think salts are probably better. If you are a, uh, infrequent user and like, maybe you're a high intensity, like you're a ultra endurance athlete, right. And like you have a, a, a marathon coming up, the ester would probably be beneficial for you there to take it before the training, but probably not something that you want to use on an everyday basis, unless you have the, the money to do so. Um, but when you get down to the salts, the difference between there's you know, some salts that are, uh, that have the isomer or the version of the ketone that is identical to what your body produces. And then there's other products that have, uh, that has a, an isomer of that version, which basically means that it's a, a replica of it that looks very similar and is recognized similarly by the body. And that, that's another topic that people tend to argue about is they're like, well, I want the product that contains the version that my body makes naturally. But interestingly enough, there's been some really good research showing that the other, the isomer of that, that can be found in other exogenous ketone products actually has um, additional benefits for like reducing inflammation. So, you know, there's not really a right or wrong answer here. There's, there's just, it depends on what your goal is for these things. Um, and, and, you know, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but the, as a, as an additional thing to point out, one of the biggest concerns that people have with exogenous ketones is that if I take them, I'm going to stop my body's natural production of ketones. And that is not the case. Uh, research hasn't shown that. Um, what actually, I guess I should take a step back there. That is the case in the short term, potentially. So if your, your body has, you know, an, an energy sensor is kind of a way you can look at it in your blood. And if you have enough ketones in your blood, your body is going to temporarily halt ketone production. So what happens when you take an exogenous ketone product is, is you're going to get this increase in ketones that's, and your body's going to say, okay, I don't really need to produce any more right now, but that's just going to be during that, you know, one and a half to three hours that your ketones are elevated. And then once it goes back down, your body's going to start producing that again. And, and you can easily test this by test your baseline ketones, take an exogenous ketone supplement, test your ketones after, and then test it hours later, your ketones don't go back to zero. They usually go back to what your baseline measure is. So that, that kind of is a, a common misconception that people have about these ketones. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a really big proponent for them. I think that they're, they have a lot of benefit. It's just 
whether or not people under like it's important that we market them the right way and we talk about them the right way so people don't end up falling into thinking that like oh I either I have to have these or um you know or I you know I'm against these things you know they they have their place if they're used strategically all right so a couple of questions here with regard yeah, to the a long one <laughs> that was good that was good um so with regard to the L versus D isomer mm-hmm. of the exogenous ketones um is there because is there any definitive science that that shows without a doubt that the um, the the non-identical is not bad? I know Veach is like of the side that it's it is terrible for you, or whatever. And the other people have argued the opposite, the contrary. So is that still kind of in the air, or is there pretty like I haven't followed up on that science lately, so I don't know what the the um, outcome truly is. Yeah. So it is a little bit up in the air still. I don't think that there's like a definitive thing here. And, you know, it's kind of my understanding that, and I don't want to speak for him because I, I don't know, but I think that there are cases where isomers of, of, of certain molecules can be dangerous. And I think it may be this understanding that this can happen that has led Veach to fear um, these, these different isomers of the, the ketones. But it ha- there has been some preliminary research that has shown that um, it's that they are safe and that they're just metabolized a little bit differently. So uh, I was speaking with Travis Christofferson um, earlier this week. I, I got to see him at an event here in Austin and, and we were talking about this a little bit and he was kind of saying how um, there's some research out there suggesting that the body burns the, the other isomer a little bit more like a fat. So, uh, you know, it might be able to, you know, there, it could potentially help stimulate some ketone production. But what's really interesting about it is that the other isomer is a more potent antioxidant. So it's been shown to, um, I believe it's through binding to a certain inflammasome that it's, is why it's able to do this, but it's able to increase our uh, antioxidant uh, potential or our ability to combat inflammation. So um, that's that kind of there shows me that like just the two might be different and they might have different effects on the body, but that doesn't mean that you know one is necessarily better than the other. And the research hasn't told us that at all. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, it's it's the D isomer that is not identical, right? Uh, you know what? I always I always get these messed up. I believe it is the uh, the D isomer that is. You know what? I always get this messed up. Well, the, um, the one that's not identical. Let's we'll just use that terminology. Yeah, the one that is yeah. not identical. That's not measured by blood ketone strips. So you're having a higher uh, blood ketone concentration than is illustrated when you test post uh, consumption of one of these exogenous ketone salts, correct? Um, you do. So I'm sorry, you, you cut out a little bit there. So uh, you said that you do see if you take the regardless of what version that you see, you will see an increase in your blood ketones when you test it. Right. But the the uh, uh, the non bioidentical isomer isn't picked up on blood ketone strips like the other uh, like the identical one is. So your blood ketone concentration is actually higher than is illustrated via the the blood ketone testing device, right? Well, my understanding is a little bit different than that. I think that the other isomer is uh, not as a high percentage of it is absorbed compared to the other. I think that they both are will register on a strip the same way, but you it's not as high of a conversion rate to what is ingested versus what is um, becomes available in your blood is, is kind of my understanding on this. So, um, but I, you know, through using, I I've tested with both isomers before and I have seen like almost identical increases in blood ketones within like a, a one, you know, 0.1 millimolar or something like that. So, 
um, yeah, I, I think that they're they're pretty similar so far. So far from what yeah. I've seen myself and at least for what's in the research. And then you mentioned that, um, you know, like if you if you give your body time to clear this exogenous ketone from your blood, your, your body uses it, your ketone levels will return to baseline. If you're just constantly consuming this, like, I mean, there's people that it's almost like they have this on a drip IV or something, but they're just constantly consuming these uh, exogenous ketone salts. If that is momentarily halting your body's uh, internal, you know, endogenous ketone production because it is demand driven, is that going to have a uh, negative impact on one's ability to basically lose body fat as efficiently as if they were to rely solely on endogenous ketone uh, creation? Yeah, great question. So I, I'll kind of preface this with saying, and just to let you know too, I did, it, it is the D that is the the natural one um, that is okay. that's in the body. But um, I'll preface this with saying we don't know 100%. We don't have the answer to this. Uh, we haven't had research to say. But my speculation would be that if you are frequently stimulating this, like you said, you have like an IV drip of it, you're doing it like every two, three hours, I would say that you're probably reducing your body, your, the demand of your body to have to burn its own fat and produce its own ketones. So I would think that that could potentially get in the way of fat burning if that's your primary goal. So that's, and that's why I recommend not doing it like that. I think that the best way to take, to take this product is, is, you know, use it like you would use a cup of coffee, right? Like you wouldn't drink coffee all day. Well, some people might, I guess, but it's yeah. not a good idea to be drinking coffee all day, right? So um, wh when do you need that cup of coffee or when do you need that energy? That's kind of the way that I like to look at it. For me, it's like if it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I am looking for some energy, but I don't want to have coffee because I don't want to mess with my sleep. I'm going to use exogenous ketones because my goal for the next two to three hours isn't for me to be burning fat. It's for me to have an increase in like my mental clarity. So that's going to be when I take it. But yeah, I, I would have to say, but like I said, no research on this, but I would have to say that taking them all day, every day is probably going to be counterproductive if fat burning is your primary goal. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, man, because exogenous ketones have so many, uh, I mean, it's, it's so goal dependent, like there's pros and cons to it depending on what your primary objective is. So they, they may like if you're on a drip, it's, it's going to decrease your body's ability to, uh, you know, produce those ketones endogenously through burning body fat. But at the same time, exogenous ketones can, uh, you know, improve your recovery time. So you're able to train more frequently, which is going to have a positive net effect on your ability to burn body fat. So there's so many different variables in there all at once. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's kind of a good point is like, if you're able to, if exogenous ketones, like, like let's just isolate a, a certain situation, like before a training session. So, um, you know, based if, if what we're saying is true, that maybe you're, you're not optimizing fat burning in the post, you know, couple hour window of taking exogenous ketones, then you would think, well, maybe during the training session, that means that I'm not burning as much fat. But if the exogenous ketones gave you so much more energy that you're able to train at a higher intensity, then, you know, you probably are. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of everything's not in a vacuum. There's a lot of compounding variables that people have to take into consideration with this. Um, you know, we see at Perfect Keto, we see so many success stories of people who are, you know, using the, the exogenous ketones like one time a day and following the ketogenic diet and doing all the things right. And they just see tremendous results. I mean, you know, hundreds of pounds lost. So it's, it's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, taking this product is not getting in the way of their fat burning. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm, I'm definitely kind of, I, I personally tend to, to gravitate towards them more when I'm in more of a, like a surplus building phase. Cause I feel like I get mm -hmm. a pretty significant benefit from like just a recoverability standpoint, 
uh, you know, like I said, the electrolyte, you know, as a, as a indirect benefit is nice. Um, and mm -hmm. then I'm not trying to lose body fat at that point. So any potential downside of having it is, is a mute point basically. Yeah. And it, it's, it also brings up a good point that like you have different goals at different times and you don't want your body to always be in a catabolic breaking down mode. You know, you don't have to be in fat burning mode 24 hours of the day. Um, you know, I, for anybody out there, I mean, if, if you're at work or you're about to give a presentation or, you know, maybe you're just going to be going out with family and you want to have more energy, you know, your primary goal during that time is probably having a brain that works better and having more mental clarity and stuff. And, you know, I think that's, that's a good reason to, to take these things. I mean, it's kind of like just looking at nutrition in general, right? Like, um, and we know that if you keep your insulin levels down, that means that you're burning fat, right? But that doesn't mean that you should never have a carb ever again. That doesn't mean that you should be in that fat burning mode forever. It just means that, you know, you know, this is how it works. So you can kind of adjust it based on what your goals are. So I think a lot of times because, you know, keto, most people are coming to keto for weight loss. That tends to be all we consider it for. But there's just so many other things that come with a ketogenic diet that doesn't have to be so focused on fat burning. Totally, totally agree. What's the, uh, what's the third largest controversial topic in the book? Hmm. Well, you know, I'd have to say we, so we have a chapter in the book. Ooh, tough. There's two here. Um, I'm, so I'm going to go with, uh, carnivore. So we, ha we have a chapter in the book where we, uh, we talk about the different types of ketogenic diets. So we talk about, you know, standard ketogenic diet, talk about modified Atkins, cyclic, uh, targeted. And then we talk about, um, carnivore. And obviously that's mm -hmm. a pretty controversial one because, uh, it, it just the whole, everything about it, right? Like if you, if you believe that fat's good, uh, that doesn't mean that you believe that meat's good or animal products are good or that that's all you should be eating. So this tends, I think this is like one of the most controversial topics in nutrition in general right now. So we, we talk about that a lot in the book about, you know, what is carnivore, what we know about it, what we don't know about it. And, um, you know, what are some cases, what it could be really good for, like, what's the therapeutic potential, um, you know, what's some of the potential for, you know, improving body composition and stuff with it, or, you know, maybe busting through like a keto plateau of some sort. So, um, yeah, that I'd say that probably has to be the third most controversial thing that we talk about, especially from the vegans. Oh yeah, man. Oh, definitely. <laughs> we, uh, we actually, that that's kind of another thing that's addressed earlier in the book. We talk about how, you know, the biggest question somebody has and it comes back up at towards the end when we talk about carnivores, uh, you know, people wonder or people assume that you that you need vegetables to get all of your nutrients in. And what people don't really realize is that the nutrients and, and vitamins and stuff that are found in uh, plant sources are just not as bioavailable to humans. And mm -hmm. um, luckily, we have ruminant animals that are able to better digest these uh, plant material and um, you know, contain the nutrients within their muscle meat so that we can have access to them when we eat them. And, you know, it's like for a lot of nutrients, it's like drastically different how much more bioavailable these nutrients are coming from meat sources versus plant sources. And, um, and we talk all about that a lot in the book about how, you know, yeah, there's plenty of, of research out there that shows that vegan and vegetarian diets are beneficial, but you're always, every single study that you see is always comparing it to a standard American diet. And, um, right. and you know, what, what we know is that if you were eating McDonald's before and now you're eating broccoli, probably going to see some improvements in your health. Right. And that, that shouldn't come as any surprise, but what we do know is that these nutrient deficiencies that come from somebody not being able to properly absorb the nutrients that are found in these plants, 
uh, those tend to show over time and the side effects that come with that, you know, they, they always tend to come out the longer somebody's following the diet. So, uh, we, we address those things pretty carefully in the book, um, because it, it is a hard conversation, you know, people, I don't blame people who want to follow a plant-based diet because for one, our nutrition information that's out there is just, it's, it's horrible. I mean, totally you get, yeah. it's, it's crazy. You know, you look at these media outlets and everything's clickbait, right? So it's like somebody, uh, I was a couple of weeks ago, I was complaining about this because there was one big news outlet that they posted an article one day saying that the ketogenic diet was awesome. And that, uh, you know, these were the reasons why women should follow keto. And then the next day they were talking about why you, women should not follow the ketogenic diet and why they should fear it. And I'm like, you are, you're just trying to put out clickbait articles that people are going to click on. So they'll go to your website. And, you know, and you, even when you look at like the dietary guidelines, you see that um, despite the fact that the dietary guidelines go against their own uh, criteria for what should be what a what research you have to have to support a certain type of diet there, even though the research isn't there, they have all these underlying recommendations of a plant-based diet. So people are confused and they don't know what to do. And on top of that, you know, if you were eating the standard American diet and you started following a plant-based diet and you lost a hundred pounds, well, of course you're going to be passionate about it. You're going to think that this diet is great. So, but you know, just because we don't want, I'm kind of in the camp of like, I would just like to give people the information and let them choose what they want to do with it. I'm really not on like a crusade to like go fight every vegan or vegetarian that's out there. Um, totally I think not, it's just yeah. You don't want to do that. Yeah. No, not at all. Because also like who, who's going to respond to that? I mean, it's like, you know, you're like the the guy that's sitting outside of, a, of the bar at night that's with a megaphone talking about God, yelling at you, calling you a sinner, right? Like nobody's going to respond very well to that. Nobody wants somebody to be like in their face saying that what you're doing is wrong. Uh, I think the better approach to say is just like, here's the two things. Here's what you need to consider with this diet. Here's what you need to consider with that diet. And I'll let you make the decision about it. And that's kind of the approach we take with the book is, is we just, we put the facts out there. We put the research that supports it. And then we put, you know, our recommendations based on what we've experienced ourselves and what we've seen with other people. And, you know, we hope that that, that approach will be a little bit easier for somebody who may not believe in this diet or believe in, you know, eating, you know, meat, for example, it'll help them kind of open up to that. Yeah, I think that's 100% the way to go about it, man. I mean, I feel like regardless of what dieting protocol you choose to follow, it only makes sense that you're well-informed in your decision. Like, don't be ignorant as to what's actually happening from a biological standpoint internally. Like, know what's going on, how your body's being affected by it, and then make an educated, you know, move based off of that as opposed to just following blindly, you know, some type of random diet that you just feel good about because the media portrays it as such. Totally. And you know what, like, and, and I'll be fair here and say that just as much. So here's the thing. Here's the two things that is wrong with a lot of the information coming out about vegetarian and vegan diets and plant-based diets and stuff is that it's, you know, one, it's the, the studies that they're using are compared to comparing it to a standard American diet. And the other thing is that they're using epidemiological studies, which are just the weakest studies that are out there. Basically, this is just like you follow a group of people for a period of time and you, you ask them, you know, questions about their diet, and then you use that information to infer some sort of conclusion. And that's impossible to do. We know in research that this is, it was never meant for these types of studies to be used to make recommendations. These types of studies were invented so that we could discover trends that we would further dive into and learn more about it. But that's not what we're doing. So anytime that somebody's, you know, telling you that like meat is bad or that plant-based diets are good or anything like that, most of the times the research they're using fall into those two categories. 
But the problem is, is to be fair, is that on the keto side, we like to do the same thing. We, you know, we like to use a study that shows a ketogenic diet compared to the standard American diet, or we like to use an epidemiological study that shows that, you know, in the same breath that we want to say, well, that study, that epidemiological study that says that, you know, red meat causes colon cancer is garbage because it's not a good study. But this epidemiological study that shows that red meat doesn't cause heart disease is. And it's like, yeah. well, we have to be fair here. You know, if, if, if this type, if we don't accept this type of research as being a quality research, then we shouldn't use it in our favor either. So, um, and, and I think that's one of the big reasons why we have such this debate here is because, you know, people are, are doing that type of thing where, you know, if you're sitting in the plant-based community, you're like, well, Hey, you're doing the same thing that you're calling us out for. So I think that's an important thing to consider is like, you have to know what a good study is and you have to stick to that regardless of what side you're on. And to be fair to, I mean, I'm not trying to pick sides one way or the other. Like I'm not vegan by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to pay respect to any human being. I mean, I feel like humans, we're we're all in this together, you know, but there are some incredibly ignorant dogmatic carnivores. And if I was a vegan trying to be swayed to eat meat by one of these carnivores, that's the last thing I would want to do. Totally. Yeah. And that's like, Man, you're you're speaking my language here. It's it's one of the things that I've been frustrated with, and I've I've talked out about it a couple times. It's like I'm I'm the same way. Like we're humans, we're all on the same team, and I am a. What I would prefer is to have as many people as they can take control of their health, right? And the way that we're going to do that is through like positive conversation and getting the message out there. And it's not going to be through like condemning people for the way that they're eating or anything like that. And I do understand that it's hard because. Um, if you're, if you know, like I, I say teams, like if you're somebody who's, you know, I post about carnivore, I've had vegetarians and vegans who have direct messaged me and said, literally said, like, I hope you get heart disease and die one day. Like I've, I've had that, that being said to me. And, um, and I see that and I'm like, well, this is obviously a really bad look for the whole, your whole community and everything like that. But I am not going to be the one that's going to give that back to, in the other direction, you know, like right. I, I am not going to be the pot calling the kettle black here. And, you know, be mad that you're saying that to me, but then coming after people um, who don't agree with me. So I just think it's so important that like, whether it's nutrition or whatever it is that that you're talking about, like if, if, if it's not fostering positive communication and conversation, then you're not going to get your point across and people aren't going to be receptive to it. And, you know, if your first interaction with somebody who is following like a carnivore diet, for instance, is them just like coming at you and, and, you know, calling you names and being like, and putting you down you're probably not going to ever convert to that way of life. And what I would prefer is to, you know, put it in a way that you may actually consider doing this because I do believe that it's better for your health. Totally. And and this this might be kind of hard to articulate, but I'm going to try. You look at what the keto community is. I mean, you look at just, you know, the science and the research and what is actually happening with the food you consume, how your body's using it. I mean, I feel like there's a pretty strong argument that meat, especially red meat, is much more nutrient-dense than you know, a, a head of broccoli. I mean, I feel like that's pretty much proven. But totally. if you look at, you know, what it is that makes somebody follow a certain type of nutritional protocol, it goes beyond just, you know, its effect internally on your organ cells, et cetera, et cetera. Like it goes into how you feel about that, that how you communicate it to other people that are on that, that how, you know, you feel and engage within the community. And I mean, it's only fair that vegans would do that as well because that's exactly what we're doing and replicating in the keto community. It's different, but mm-hmm. it's the same. So to say that, you know, if, if somebody chooses to be a vegan because they like the way it makes them feel, 
and they feel like they have a place, they feel like they're relatable. I mean, we're doing that exact same thing within the keto space. I feel like a lot of vegans go that route because they they feel that they're having a uh, profound positive impact on the environment and they don't want to see animals suffer, they get into animal rights, which totally agree with wanting to do that. You know, like I don't like seeing these mass produced feedlots. Um, I don't like seeing all these cows and chickens waiting in their own manure because there's just not enough room, not enough space, just not ethical. Like I would never argue for that. There's got to be a sustainable approach to, you know, food creation, like how to, how to produce food. Totally. But animals like plants are renewable resources. I mean, that is very mm-hmm. much so the case. That's just circle of life there. And there's a lot that happens to the planet in a negative light due to mass produced, you know, soy fields and whatnot. So vegans have to look at that the same way they look at, you know, what's happening in these mass produced, uh, you know, ranching operations of cattle. So both sides, both the meat eating side and the plant based side need to take, put their pride aside for a minute, take a step back and look at what's actually happening and, you know, try and, you know, Take yourself down a notch, put yourself in the other person's shoes, and then come up with a reasonable and educated and a respectful stance on it based off of actual facts instead of all this just noise that's out there right now. Totally. And yeah, you are so right. You hit on so many things. I'm just sitting here like nodding my head. Um, It's... We love to overcorrect as humans. We love to like drastically overcorrect in the opposite direction. So it's like somebody hears that uh, that cows lead to greenhouse gases. So well, then we can't eat cows, right? Like we have to go the other way. Or somebody sees that um, that there is a they see the way that these like concentrated feedlots are, and they see the way these animals are treated, and they're like, well, I don't want to do that to animals. Then I, I just can't eat them. And so there's like this drastic overcorrection in the other in the other way. And I think this is such an important conversation to have because if you are somebody, and this is what I'll say, if you're somebody who's following a plant-based diet because this is part of your like cultural religious beliefs, hey, that's great. That's just that's something that that's I can't speak to that because it's um, you know, I'm not in that same camp. If you're somebody who is eating this way because you don't want to harm animals and uh just the thought of killing another animal just isn't it is, you just can never imagine doing that that's completely fine if you think that you're doing it because it's healthy for you or that because it's better for the environment then there's some things that you need to know and like we addressed a lot of the things about nutrition about some of the, the misconceptions there but when you talk about the environment it's like we, yeah i'm not an advocate for the way that meat is produced in most cases but when you're talking about the way that when animals are living the way that they should be living there's actually benefit to the environment on these things. I mean, you know, there's research that has come out saying that, uh, you know, cows who are living or you know, cattle and stuff that are living in their um, environment and they're out in nature and everything, they actually have a net negative carbon effect because um, the way that they're, you know, they're trampling up soil and the soil is able to actually sequester some of these greenhouse gases. Um, it's actually there's, you know, it, when it's done the right way and sustainably, it's actually good for our environment. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean that all meat is, is good. It means that you need to focus on, uh, the farms and the people who are doing it the right way. And, and this is kind of a a big thing that I'm on, which is like the ability to vote with your dollars. Um, I go to a, a local rancher here, you know, I'm in Texas, so I have really great access to meat here. Um, and I, I go to a farmer's market where I know the, the rancher and he does biodynamic farming where, 
he treats the soil a certain way so that it meets a certain standard so that the cows have access to the most nutrient dense, um, you know, plant material that they can eat. And they're out living in their, in their natural environment and they're treated the right way. They're not, you know, stuck in these really small buildings and, you know, all diseased and sick and everything like that. That's where I'm going to go buy my meat because I'm going to be voting with my dollar in favor of that because that is the right practice that is not only better for our health, um, but it's also better for our environment. And uh, that's that's what I'm going to choose to do. And I, I would encourage other people to do the same thing. I mean, if you're in this camp of of, of eating a lot of meat, um, let's not support the people who are doing it the wrong way because ultimately those people who are doing it the wrong way is what's going to make it harder for us to get this message out there. So let's support the people who are doing it the right way. And, you know, it's pretty easy to do that. It may be a little bit more expensive, but I think it's important that we look at our health as an, you know, as an investment rather than an expense. Totally, totally agree, man. And and on that note, I feel like it's important to have more of a holistic nose to tail approach to these, to like cattle, for instance, if you're only getting the prime cuts, if you're only eating ribeye, you know, a lot of beef is dying just so that you can eat a ribeye. But if you're also yeah. eating, you know, the other cuts of meat, uh, some of the organ meat, like that's contributing to the positive impact and you're you're getting more value from that animal. And I mean, honestly, this, this is why I hunt. I hunt because I feel like it's my duty. It's my ability to give back and, and have more holist, of a holistic view on how I obtain my food. Um, I mean, conservation mm-hmm. is a huge passion. And you look at most hunters, and conservation is definitely there as a priority for most hunters. You do have a couple crazy bad apple that are just, you know, roadside hunters that don't that don't do anything right. But if you're doing things properly and you're taking note of properly managing these wildlife herds, like that's that's incredibly important. That's crucial. And hunting is is a great way to do that. Plus, I have a very nose tail approach with the animal I kill. It's a very high quality meat. It nourishes my body, um, and I respect the animal in in harvesting the animal. So it's it's a holistic view, and I feel like there's just so much, you know, misinformation out there surrounding it, surrounding how to get local meat, and and to just drive it one step further. For you know, like you said, you know, if you're a vegan and you have certain uh, you know religious or political views, and you eat that way because of that, you know, more power to you. I'll never stand in between that and you. Um, and if you're a vegan because you don't want to harm or consume animals, uh, you know, that's fine too, but don't be blind in thinking that you're not having a, or you're not contributing to the loss of animal life because you're not eating the animal. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the, there's a lot of animals that die due to totally disrupted ecosystems to plant soy crops and all these other crops for vegan food production. So they may not be the one pulling the trigger. They may not be in the one processing the meat, but they're definitely contributing to that loss of animal life. And I feel like it's only fair to make that fact known because like we were saying earlier, I mean, know what the variables are, know what's actually happening and then make an educated opinion accordingly. Totally. And and this even goes back to talking about why the importance of like fostering positive of education is that like, if you have this conversation, and of course, there's going to be people that they don't want to hear it. But if you have this conversation with people, and you present the information in this way, um, people can resonate with that a lot better. But if you're sitting there and somebody, you know, if somebody says that, okay, I don't eat meat because it's bad for the environment. And your response is, oh, that's bullshit. Uh, you know, no way. That, that's, that's ridiculous. You're, you're dumb. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, 
that's yeah. pretty counterproductive. That's not going to be a, a conversation that's going to help anybody. But, you know, the better thing is just to put the information out there. And, you know, for anybody who's looking for more information on this, Peter Ballerstead is like the is my go to guy for this. This guy knows a lot about the environmental impacts of these things. And, you know, pretty much everything that you've been told um, that, uh, you know, about like the negative environmental impacts of this stuff, he can debunk all of it. Um, so he's a really good resource for this. But um, yeah, if you're if you're just being really negative about it and you're not just putting the information out there in a way that people can consume the information and decide what to do with it then you're never going to get your point across and you're never going to help people out. And I think in the nature of trying to help people, that should be our goal is just say, here it is. Here's the facts. Um, here's, I know this is what you think. And here's the reasons why um, those things are wrong based on these facts and these research. And you can choose what to do with that information. Um, but that's, and that's it. And that's really all you can do to somebody, right? I mean, if somebody does, if they want to be naive to that and completely ignore that stuff, then of course you you can't really do anything. But um, the hope is that some people through taking that approach, they'll be more, they'll have their eyes open. They'll be more attuned to actually trying some of these things and, and, you know, seeing the benefits that it'll have on their health. hundred percent, man. I mean, anybody, no matter where they're at in life, they should prioritize just simply having the right information. I mean, it's not enough to just follow it blindly and hope for the best. Like if you're alive on this earth, you're having an impact on it. So you mm-hmm. owe it to the earth and everybody in it to make educated decisions. I mean, that's just common totally. sense. So man, you're the same language for sure, man. Totally. And you bring up such a good point there too, is like, it is our, you know, the, the butterfly effect of what you do is, is so great that it like, it is your responsibility to take, take care of yourself and to take care of your health so that you can be a better contributor to society. And, and, you know, that, that also goes without saying is, you know, all these people that talk about the environmental impact, well, what about the economical impact of these things? Um, we know, like we just talked about, about the biochemistry and the nutrition and, and why eating meat is good and it's going to be better for your health, not having it is bad for your health. And what is the economical burden of not taking care, taking care of your health? When you talk about like the healthcare industry and everything like that. So, you know, those are other things that people aren't considering when they're having this conversation is like, I, I kind of think it's our obligation to take care of our health. If you want to be a positive contributor to this society and it goes past more of just like what your beliefs are and, and, you know, what a nutrition book says. Totally, man. I mean, you, you need, like, it is your responsibility to take care of your body. Like simply mm-hmm. letting your body go to hell is not good because it's going to have a more, for one, I mean, you're not gonna be able to live life to the fullest and you only have one life. So you might as well do that. But then two, it's going to negatively impact all those that you interact with, come in contact with. It's going to impact the community from like a medical tax standpoint. It's mm-hmm. just not the right way to live. So you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your fellow human being to, you know, provide the best quality nutrition and and lifestyle towards yourself to prolong a healthy life so that you can have more years on this planet to contribute to positive things to the planet and the betterment of society as a whole. And if you're not doing that, then you're a parasite. You're You're taking more than you're providing. And who needs that, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about like teams earlier and stuff. It's like, I'm team human. That That's where I stand. <laughs> I want, yeah, uh, you know, the, yeah. the betterment of this world. That's, that's the camp that I fall in. So, um, you know, I don't care who you are, or what you're doing, like do your part, like you said, do your part to make this world a better place and watch the effect of that. And it's going to be a lot more widespread than you think. I love it. I love it. Well, Chris, we've been going for a while, man. We probably ruffled some feathers. Definitely enjoyed <laughs> this conversation though. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, uh, resonated with everything you said for sure. Yeah, it's it's been uh, 
It's been a great talk. I, it's it's funny. I feel like every time you and I get together and we talk, whether it's you know podcast or at an event, it's it's always great to see how aligned we are on a lot of things. So it's always great talking to you, man. Hundred percent. Well, where can people go get the book? Find out more about you. Follow along, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So the book it can be found on Amazon uh, right now. We have it in Kindle and paperback format. So if you search Keto Answers on Amazon, you'll find it there. And then for anybody who wants to follow more of my stuff. I have my, uh, it's a, the ketologist and you can find it on, you know, every social media channel, but Instagram's going to be the best one to follow if you have questions. Cause, uh, that's where I do most of my responding in the DMS and stuff like that. And then I did just, uh, within the last few weeks, start working on a YouTube channel and, and trying to get more videos up there. So over the next few months, I'm going to have a lot of content coming out there. So that might be a, another great place to follow me. Very nice. You got to make this book audible, man. Like put it up on audible. Well, we we are doing that. So uh, we the it it was something that uh, it was going to take a long time to get this audible out there, and we didn't want to delay the launch of the book anymore. So we're hoping to have an audible version available by the new year, um, just because the production of that takes a lot longer. But we will be having one hopefully available in the next couple months. It's been like one of the bit you know the book's only been out for like three days now, and that's been one of the biggest feedbacks we've had. Is like, oh, I want the audio or I want the you know the audible version. So that'll be coming soon. Very cool. Well, I'm excited for you, man. You're making waves, taking names. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care.